You are listening to the Bottom Line podcast where those living with or beyond bowel cancer, as well as health professionals involved in bowel cancer treatment and care, share their inspirational stories and lived experiences with host and bowel cancer survivor, Stephanie. It's a recurring theme with young onset bowel cancer. Bowel cancer is not an old person's disease. This is a misconception we need to change. The statistics don't lie, and young onset bowel cancer is on the rise, not just in Australia, but globally. Today's guest is one of those statistics, and not the picture Australia associates with bowel cancer. She's young, beautiful, and a smart professional, and she was diagnosed with bowel cancer, stage three at 37. Welcome, Emily McGrath. Thank you, Steph. Thank you for having me and thank you for allowing us to have this conversation. We've got um, six degrees of separation, isn't it? We, we both know people, but we actually haven't really had a proper conversation. Absolutely. We had a chance meeting in a lift one day at the hospital and I hope I look a little bit healthier today than when you saw me that time. <laughs> yes, and we will touch on that because I don't think that was a fabulous point in, uh, in your treatment. <laughs> You talk about you weren't misdiagnosed, it was more a miscommunication. Can you talk us through that initial diagnosis? Yeah, sure. So this time, it was December uh, back in 2018, um, like a lot of people, I was tired, uh, probably a little bit ran down. Um, I had some abnormal bowel uh, movements or um, symptoms that you would now say is, is related to bowel cancer. And... I guess I found a lot of different ways to justify those or put them in different boxes. I, I didn't think of it as a collective sign. So I was tired, I had some bloating, um, and then I did have some bleeding. So I presented to a doctor that wasn't my usual GP but in the same practice, and um, the bleeding had actually stopped uh, a couple of days prior and I went in there and said, oh, I've had some bleeding, I think it's nothing, it's stopped now. Maybe it was a hemorrhoid and I kind of talked myself out in front of the doctor of, of what I'd actually been experiencing and, and maybe just I was a little bit naive to what was happening. And that sort of progressed for the next four or five weeks and I could kind of tell the work had stopped and I should have been feeling much better over that Christmas period and I was starting to feel worse. Um, and it was in January in 2019 where I had a significant bleed when I was in, uh, in Sydney visiting my sister and I presented to a GP there and they were fabulous. They um, wrote me a referral to see a, a surgeon in Sydney or a, um, a specialist, I should say, in Sydney. And I think I was lucky because a lot of stories I hear, the waiting is terrible. Um, but because I was in Sydney at the time and I had bleeding, um, I was treated quite quickly. So I saw a saw a GP, um, I saw a specialist the next day, and the day after that, on the Wednesday, I was having a colonoscopy um, trying to make my flight home on the Friday. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> In three days this happened, and on that Wednesday I was diagnosed on the spot after my colonoscopy. Yeah, I was told then that it was most likely cancer to be confirmed by a scan. And what went through your mind when you were diagnosed? I don't think I can say the word that I actually said. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> we're all about being, you know, honest or authentic. It, it was just, it was, uh, you know, people say it's a shock. I think it was, but then you sort of do go into process mode and, and it nothing you ever, ever expect. And 
my face didn't look anything like the people's faces I would see in the ads or the conversations you would hear about people having bowel cancer. So it just didn't even occur to me. And I think that we all think that we get sore stomachs from food and all these intolerances that people talk about. I didn't think that was me. I didn't even think that that it would even be a possibility. And we're smart women, Emily, and I was exactly the same. (laughs) We were both in media and probably bombarded with messages and I knew all about every other cancer. Yeah. And we'll talk about awareness in a little while because I want to pick your brain about that. Yeah. So I think it's it's shock and then I went very much into probably how we all deal with the problem at work uh, or an opportunity. I just went straight into process and it was something you just had to step up to. It wasn't a choice you have to make and I guess you sort of have to shift shift gears very, very quickly to keep up with the conversations and the things that start happening around you. Yes, exactly. And um, I think... Being in that process mode sometimes helps you get through it, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. So at what point were you diagnosed as stage three? Did you have surgery or did you have radiation beforehand? What was your plan? I came back to Melbourne and uh, I actually, my surgeon was actually, or is actually a friend of a friend. And it was on the the following Friday, I think, that um, I I returned to Melbourne, or no, that Friday, and um, I, (laughs) it's a funny story, actually. My girlfriends thought they'd take my mind off the process of me waiting to hear my results of my formal full body scan and see whether the the cancer had spread and I had an appointment with my surgeon on the Tuesday so I was looking forward to that because again that was the next steps and um they said we'll pick you up on Saturday night and we'll take you out for dinner for a bowl of pasta and go to Chichilinas and I pull up to Chichilinas and my surgeon's in there (laughs) so here I am here I am trying to enjoy my pasta and I can't stop looking at this man thinking my god I hope you can save my life and um, so the process kicked off on um, on that Tuesday with a, with a consultation with him and he wanted to do, you know, further inspection and scans and, and all those things and, and mine was colon cancer. So the positioning of it was never going to be easy from what I could gather. The steps were never going to be clear and the one thing he said to me is that I wanted the plan. I wanted to know from <laughs> zero to ten, tell me how I'm going to get there. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, I'm only going to tell you step one and two because it's not going to be, it's not going to go to plan and I, I can't reassure you of that. Um, so first step was you are going to need to have surgery. We're going to remove this. So it was called an ultra-low anterior resection, which basically means that they're removing, removing a part of my bowel, but very close, to very like it's, it's your lower bowel that they're removing. So it's a, it's a complicated and was a complicated. Very close to the rectum. <laughs> that word. The word, sorry. I should have said that earlier. <laughs> no, that's that. all right. I had rectal cancer, so I say it frequently. Exactly. <laughs> um, so it was going to be a long and complex surgery and, and similar to yourself, I think that I would end up or I would wake up with a bag. So that was step one. And, and he said that most likely could be it. Like that could be the surgery and it could be the recovery. Um, but it wasn't until I went through the surgery and whilst they were, they were operating on me, they removed um, some of the lymph nodes for testing. And it was, I think, the next day or two after that where I found out that um, the cancer was present there and so it was on its way to travelling. So whilst I wish I caught my cancer earlier, um, it's not ideal to have it progress that far. I'm so fortunate that I caught it at that stage where the next plan was 
chemo and at that stage potentially radiation, but that was to be decided. Did you end up having radiation? I didn't um, because I had a quite a serious post-op infection. I was just one of the unlucky ones. Um, and due to the severity of that and how my um, health was compromised and during that stage, they felt that there was the upside to radiation wasn't clear enough and that if chemo could do the job, that was step one. Talk us through, uh, you, you mentioned about the infection. That's when I saw you at the lift that day and I, I by, by some chance, just thought, I think this is Emily. <laughs> I had a great sort of immediate reaction to the surgery. You know, I was already back doing Pilates and, you know, really focused on recovery. And it might have been about three weeks after, I think, that um, I started to get some pain and it, we progressively got worse and worse and worse. And I then went to the doctor and um, I'd always present well. I didn't look overly sick. And that was part of my coping mechanism that I would put on a bit of lippy and some clothes that would make me feel better. And, and I think I always presented quite well, but inside I was actually a bit of a mess. And I did have this serious infection that set me back. I think I'd started chemo. And so I needed to pause chemo and as anyone knows, when you're going through a treatment schedule that you don't want to pause anything. Uh, that was for me sort of, you know, slowing down the fight or, or dropping my guard. So I had to pause chemo, build myself up. I was in hospital for, I think it was at least three weeks. And just to give that context, after the seven-hour resection, you're in hospital for five days. So that's a really serious operation. And yet this, for me, was an infection that that was probably a lot worse than I realised and was challenging. It was a really, really tough period because that's when I started to lose a lot of weight and um, I, I then started to look sick. How did you cope mentally with that moment? I think you find strength in a few areas. Um, for me, it was my team around me and that provided my family with a lot of hope as well that if we absolutely trusted and, and looked to these people like my surgeon that you know over that bowl of pasta I was just hoping he would save my life and you've got to trust the process I can control how I show up every day but you have to trust the process you have to trust your surgeon and your oncologist and I think that if you have that foundation that they've done this I'm not the first I won't be the last I am known as the problem child. Oh, I'm sure that's not the case. <laughs> My oncologist even called me that the other day. So I mentally, it was about being really clear on what I could control. And yeah, knowing you've got the right things around you and tapping into all the right resources. I just had to have that focus. And I'm naturally a really positive person. It did test me, but as I said, I found strength in, in the team, my family, my friends and my medical staff. Talking about that team around you, were you offered allied health psychologists, exercise yes. physiologists? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You presented with options and I think that that's really important. And I think the advice there is that we all know that what is best for us in terms of diet, exercise and the resource and mental health um, and I think that those introductions are really good and you know but then it's up to us like do we feel comfortable working with that person 
do we need to find another person like that one? I think that the, the system gives you a really good introduction and then it's up for us to take that forward and, and find the right members of our team or to, to join our team, I guess, as well too. I think that is a really valid point. You need to empower yourself and you need to take control of how you approach it and make sure you've got like-minded people in your team. Definitely. So I think it's a great system and but it is, yeah, we need to recruit like we would in a, in a professional environment, re- recruit the people that we feel like we could work best with. You were 37, uh, which we've spoken about. You were single. Was there any discussion around your fertility and how did you cope with that? Yeah, so that was a conversation I had with my surgeon on that first meeting as well that it was presented to me is that I need to consider freezing my eggs and that I had to do it literally within a matter of days because we had to operate ASAP. So I had had some conversation probably about five years ago where I'd um, started that with a fertility nurse and I was, couldn't find the right time to take some time off work to do it. So, so this is the universe really telling me I should have mm-hmm. done that. You're not alone, though. You're not alone. There's lots of us that did it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Steph, I think I was with the fertility nurse, you know, a doctor, the week after, and, and that process kicked off really quickly. And you only got one shot really then, so they do have to go pretty hard, which meant that not only was I dealing with the prospect of just being diagnosed with cancer, I then had my body full of hormones. Which is harrowing in itself. If you were just doing the fertility piece, <laughs> would be full on. Yeah. So to do it together, wow, that's yeah. a big ask. And, and then because uh, they actually had to go quite hard, I was actually, it resulted in my surgery having to be pushed back because they did too well. I was a sort of over overstimulated (laughs) yeah Mm. um so again these little things that just you know that back to that one or two steps you don't know Mm. you know how they're going to line up did you end up having a bag and a stoma yeah yeah definitely how did you cope with that because my surgeon said to me I've never known anyone who wants to get rid of this (laughs) bag more than you I was literally the day I could I was in there oh (laughs) When you, that moment, and for anyone else that's listening that's been through that, oh, it's, it's so surreal when you wake up and you, you're almost glad that you've, well, you are glad that the surgeon has performed his role in removing the tumour. But then when you look down and you see that thing, uh, grateful for it, attached to you, it's, it was probably one of the most confronting times I had to deal with. Oh, and I second that. Yeah, I, I so feel for people, you know, even elderly, and it, it's hard. Again, you know, stoma nurses, all these roles that exist that I never knew existed, the oncology nurses, their angels, this stoma nurse that helps you through that is is just incredible. So I had my bag for a good 10 months. And uh, because of, you know, all the surgeries and delays and, and whatnot that I had it for longer than expected. And, yeah, it was, there were some tough days where you just wanted to get rid of it, but you kind of knew it was there to solve a purpose. But um, uh, so much respect for people that have to have them. And I think that, you know, you do hold on to hope that there's a small chance that you might have it forever. And, and that's also tough because you've sort of got to learn to live with it for the time being, but with the potential of it being forever. So, um yeah, it's it, medic, medicine's amazing, but it doesn't mean it's hard to deal with along the way. No, it, I totally agree. And I was like you. It, 
I always had it in the back of my mind it might still be there, but I was mm. hoping <laughs> it wasn't. How have you recovered since? I My diet needs some changes, requires some changes, and you know, I think you learn to find your rhythm and I think that, um, again, the conversation you have with your surgeon is that you probably won't go back to normal, but you find your new normal. And I'm just learning to adjust to that now. And, I again, I'm one of the lucky ones that, that I feel like, like yourself, I do feel really normal, which is amazing. Oh, that's great news. For me, bowel cancer really changed my perspective. I was in media like yourself and I, well, probably took a forced move (laughs) from media, but I think I would have moved on anyway. And it was a real pivot point for me. How was it for you? I was so fortunate at the time because my, the business I worked in and my support network, professional and personal was amazing. So I was so lucky and in that sense, I I think that I no longer sweat the small stuff <laughs> and that's so cliche, but I also do no, things. it's true though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm probably a lot more considered of what and how I do things now. So I used to probably take on a little bit too much and maybe not do things as well as I could. So I think you, you come out with a better a, a better awareness, both of yourself and of other people because I didn't lose my hair. Um, I, for most of the time, didn't look like I had cancer. And we walk past street and people in the street every day that could be going through similar things. And I guess I now try and have a better awareness of what other people could be going through without me knowing is something I think about a lot now. And we don't all tell everyone what, what we're dealing with. And, um, yeah, I, I hope that I've slowed down a bit to sort of see a bit more of what's happening around me. Yes, that point about not looking like mm. you have cancer. We have this picture of that if you're going through cancer, you've got no hair. And there's many people that are like that. But yeah. cancer comes in in a variety of forms and mm. everyone is very unique. Someone mentioned to me the other day who lost their husband at 35 and she said, kindness, just be kind. Yeah. And I just went, you know what, that's a yeah. really good reset mm. um, at times to go back to be kind. Yeah. yeah, couldn't agree more. You talk about your support system and work. Did you take time off work and what was your support system like? Yeah, so I think I called one of my, my boss was one of the first people I called uh, when I was diagnosed, not only because he was my boss, because he's my friend. And I, he said, you just turn off from now and you don't need this right now. And, and I think... Little did I know, I thought I would be fine to work. I don't know if, if he knew something that I didn't, but um, I wouldn't have been able to work. So I I did some numbers the other day. If I count in you know, a hospital in the home, which I had for a few weeks after my infection and, and numerous visits to hospital throughout 2019, I think I was in the care of a hospital for 80 days. Wow. So yeah, that, That's a lot. Yeah, I, I couldn't have worked. I still, just the little things, I still actually had access to my emails, so I still felt connected. I didn't, you know, I could still chat and my work people would connect with me and, and check in. So, and I was fortunate enough to to access income protection insurance. So as I was single, I, I financially needed to support myself and I was really lucky in that sense as well. So, um yeah, for me, that was really important. As I said, I, I, you hear of these amazing people who are able to work through it. I couldn't have. And I really did want to focus 
to my points earlier on what I could control. So if that meant I could have two extra appointments, you know, to do some exercise or to make more food for myself, I didn't need work taking up the time that I could have spent focusing on improving my health. And that energy. It's an energy. energy. And it's such a fortunate position to be in because so many aren't. And I don't take that for granted for one moment, but um, but that was just how I had to to deal with it. And yeah, if if little did I know what was coming down the line. I also was very lucky that I was able to do the same. And and I like you could not imagine not having that time because someone mentioned it's like a full time job having cancer <laughs> because yeah. you are you're at appointments and you're yeah. you know it it it's, can be very taxing both emotionally and physically. Your support network, I know you have a very close friendship group. Uh, How did that support system help work for you? Yeah, they were incredible. I think that they all had their own healths checked at the time, which is really important. They struggled, some of them struggled, um, and the conversation we had together, the conversations changed. Uh, We talked a lot more openly and we were, I guess, a lot more, I think Anthony talked about it a lot in the previous podcast, Vulnerable. And they, I was living on my own at the time with a lot of care from family, but um, they prepared, you know, little things like just, you know, grabbing some takeaway and coming, sitting on the couch with me like you would normally. I didn't need big fancy meals cooked for me. It was just doing the normal little things. Um, It was asking me how I wanted to be supported rather than wondering how they can support me, I think was a really important thing. And knowing that they could just say that this is really shit rather than try and (laughs) understand. Mm. Um, I think we all learned a lot through that process of just being really open and and asking, you know, how, how can I help? And, and a lot of people ask me that today, you know, what can I do for a friend who's going through a similar thing? And I'm, you know, you can just ask people, you don't need to to try and come up with all the answers for them. And as that patient saying what you need, don't feel uncomfortable to say, I need you to take the kids for me because I just can't cope or I need a really good home-cooked roast. Um, I just want to go with a walk for a walk with someone. Exactly, exactly, yeah. 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 Because sometimes I think we just don't want to and people want to give but they want to give so it's useful. You don't need always a room full of flowers. (laughs) I wanted to touch on, you know, you have had a long career in media and I wanted to take this opportunity to ask your thoughts on why you think we are still struggling with that stigma in the media space to gain traction that other diseases and cancers have managed to penetrate in terms of awareness. Have you got any thoughts on that? Yes. Um, there's obviously a couple of things there and, and the first one we, we know is funding and, and you can only do what you can do and you know that very well, um, yes. Steph. My, bud- my budget for <laughs> Bowel Cancer Australia is incredibly small and you can only go to the media so many times to ask them for freebies. I don't have all the answers, but <laughs> I kind of can hopefully sympathise with the challenge is that, you know, aside from us talking and, and trying to create more and more conversations, it is really, really challenging. And we're, we're competing for airtime if you want to look at it from a media perspective. And bowel cancer is not seen as sexy. No, <laughs> it's not. You took me 30 seconds to say rectum. And I think... I know there is an awareness in the marketing now. We'll see that 
the faces will change in the media and in advertising and in the promotion of bowel cancer and that we can't see, you know, a middle-aged or elderly man's face on every single bowel cancer piece of promotion or paraphernalia. Um, it needs to be more faces like myself. And now at the time when I was diagnosed, there was another girl two years younger than me in our office that was diagnosed with bowel cancer. Like it was, it's, it's around us everywhere. So it's Australia's yeah. 25 to 44 Australia's number one cancer killer. Yeah. yeah. Finally, what advice do you have for young people then who are going through a similar situation as you went through? I think that you you actually, whilst the cancer is yours and, and we own it as, as um, now a survivor, but you can't do that on your, you can't fight it on your own. And particularly with bowel cancer, you've got to quickly shift the conversation to feeling comfortable that you are going to have to talk to your doctor about yucky things and at the, we have to normalise the conversation when you are dealing with it. We have to normalise the conversation for the families that are going through it. But I maintain I had it lucky because I feel sorry for my sisters who had to sit around and, and watch me and, and see me look sick and, um, you know, and watch me go through that process. So, and what gave them strength is me sort of talking to them and sharing with them and, and letting them in. And, and and they could see that by that I was doing okay. So I think that my advice would be don't do it on your own and just don't be afraid to have the conversations of how you're feeling, what you're doing. It's yuck. Like it's it's quite, it's so foreign. That's right. It is. It's such a foreign conversation. We don't talk about it at all. So not only is, is cancer an incredibly scary thing to have, we quickly have to just change a conversation we have with our friends and families to, to find that strength. Fabulous. I'm going to ask what I ask all our interviewees, the three takeouts they want people to take away from today's chat. Yeah, I think that you touched on it before around the be kind piece when you talked about being kind to others. And I think that we all need to be kind to ourselves when we're, we're dealing with this. And, you know, we all listen to podcasts and, and thought leaders at the moment and talking about, you know, we've got to have a purpose and find our place and, and all of these sorts of things. And I, I recall prior to being diagnosed, I used to go, I don't know really what my purpose is. Like I, I, like, I like my work, I, I'm not a mom yet, so like how does that play out? And, um, and all of a sudden when I was diagnosed with cancer, my purpose was to stay alive. And my purpose was to stay alive for my family, for my friends, for my colleagues. And at that time, everything just seemed really simple, albeit incredibly complex around mm. me. And I just needed, needed to be kind and, and understand that we don't need to be everything to everyone. And, and there's such a pressure on us all to, to be so much more than what we really need to do. So that for me is is really really vital and I think really important. Um, the second piece so would be build your team and and like we do at work, you know, find your people that are they're going to help you because you'll find support in every single word they say. You'll hang on everything, and and that is the thing you can control. Um, I mean, for me, is really important. Is is that? And then probably the third thing was 
and I think Anthony touched on it in his podcast and for me it was really important. When I started chemo, one of the, the oncology nurses said to me, and it might sound a little superficial, but when you look good, you feel good. And mm-hmm. it was the little things every day that I could control how I would show up. So if I'm showing up to an appointment or I'm showing up to chemo or I'm showing up to a coffee with my friends, it was how, how do I give myself a little edge? Is it just making myself feel better? Is it eating something beautiful? Is it putting on a bit of lippy? Just the little things that help me be a better person and show up really, really helped me because that's how I would do any other day of my life. Why would I do it any differently when I had cancer? And I think that if I had stopped thinking about how I showed up each day, I would have really, really struggled. A little bit, you cannot underestimate a little bit of lippy and a little bit of mascara, can you? (laughs) They're my two (laughs) go-tos. It makes us feel, as I said, I think, you know, it might sound silly, but it's what we do every other day. So, Mm -hmm. and it can make you feel 1% better. That's a win. Emily, it's so fabulous to hear your story. And I really appreciate you sharing your story with me. Such powerful insights into awareness and young onset bowel cancer and what you went through. It's been such a delight to chat to you and I'm so glad that you are through the other side. So thank you. No, thank you, Steph. I I really appreciate and from the sidelines, Amaya, everything that you do in in this space. So um, thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to the Bottom Line podcast. To find out more about bowel cancer or for support or simply to donate, please go to bowelcanceraustralia.org.